Genesis 19, 1 through 6. Hey, Reuben, how are you? Um, just to set the scene, what has happened recently in 17, chapter 17 and 18? Where have we been? Talking about father-in-law. Okay. And who is that? Jethro. Jethro. Just like saying the name Jethro. Um, and and what, where were they? What, what? Okay, so, the, so this area known as Horeb. Um, what history do we know of this place so far? Burning bush. What else? Striking the rock. Striking the rock. Okay. In the future, the Ten Commandments, yes, but we're not there yet. But yes, you're right. Uh, and, and what else had happened here? There was war in them, them, them their hills. What, what happened? They got attacked by the Amalekites. Amalekites, that's right. So we have this picture of Moses holding his hands up, somebody holding his hands up. So you have this, the, these evidences of God's deliverance both meeting their physical needs and protecting them from a warring nation. Uh, and then they met with Jethro and told him what was going on, and they had the, the, um, the, the, the institution of the judges there. So here we have, flowing into verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day... They came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. All right. This chapter begins something. It sets the scene for the establishment of what we call a covenant between God and the people of Israel. What is a covenant? Okay. I'll use orange. Covenants. Covenant. It's a promise. By whom? By God. Okay. By God. And who else? You said two parties. So. Well, it's a setting out of an agreement between two people. Um, yeah. Setting out of an agreement between two or more persons. Yeah. Right? So God and the people, we'll say. In this case. In this case. So generally, a covenant is... <coughs> a set of promises between two or more parties. So you have the promise uh, of God, and maybe we can characterize it a little differently for the people here. What do we have in response to the promise of God, just generally? Obedience by 
their duties. Um, all right. Their duties. This is awful. So I'm going to have to go with pink. I'm sorry. Duty of people to obey. Okay? Um, some, have, some have defined a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered, which doesn't really help me. Um, another is a binding contract between God and man, one that God has initiated and administered. Um, this, this is basically a peace treaty that he's starting here. A peace treaty between God and Israel that has promises on God's part and obligation on man's part. Do, do we get that from the text? Do you see how, how that's laid out? And we'll see that this is an expansive thing. There's two, two parts to it. There's, there's the Ten Commandments, which we're going to get to in a, probably after January. Um, and then there is... I'm just kidding. And then there is um, uh, this, the next section called the Book of the Covenant, which is like Exodus 20, verse 23 through chapter 22 and on. It's a, bit, it's a more detailed section. But these are obligations that God puts on the people in response to his promises there to... There to um, to fulfill these obligations. All right, let's get into the text. Uh, 19.1. We've seen this transition again and again and again throughout the chapters where it says, and then, and then, and then. There's a Hebrew word called, I love this, the, the way you pronounce it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the way I always hear it in my head when I read it, is wa. Is that right? Wa, W-A-W? Okay, vav. Well, that just ruins it for me. Germans. Germans. Okay. So we'll just say wa. Does that be incorrect? Okay. Can I, can I be correct and say wa? Today. Today I will be. All right. So it's wa, and it has, it, with the idea, a continuation from one event to the next. It's a, it's a constant moving forward. You don't have that here. What do you have? You have a precise... Uh, uh, period of time that's, that's, that's given. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, so there's kind of a break in the narrative here. This is a new chapter heading, for example. I mean, th this is a new uh, event, and, and it's geographically based. Where is it? How does, he, how does he title this? Where does he orient us? wilderness of Sinai. We will be in the wilderness of Sinai for the rest of Exodus. This is where the rest of the book takes place. Welcome. This is where we're going to be. And this is where the whole break is. 1 through 18 gets us to this point in the rest of the book. And Leviticus. <laughs> All of that is, is located here. All right. Verse 2 gives more specifics on how they got there, and, and it kind of gives a, a summary of where chapter 18 had ended. So we, we, we've seen them traveling from Rephidim to Sinai, and uh, we've seen the two previous tests that they had done, the lack of water test and the, and the war test. Um, and they've already pitched their camp at the mountain in chapter 
And again, this is the same mountain that he saw the burning bush. So all this thing is, is geographically centered on this wilderness of Sinai. All right, look at, look at verse 3. What action is Moses doing here? What's he doing? And doing what? He's talking to God. What is he supposed to do after talking to God? Repeat, and I'm glad you said the word quotation because that's exactly right. He is to relay word for word what God is saying to him, to the people. What do we call that? What, what is he? What's a big messenger? Okay, what's another word for that? Mediator. What's a mediator? Jesus is always a good answer in Sunday school. Somebody that stands in between two parties and articulates each side. Okay, don't get too detailed about this. Next question. But have any of you ever been involved in a lawsuit? Yes? <laughs> just one? Yeah, just one. At least one. Yeah, many. <laughs> many, many. But never the party, I must say. Um, he, here's the deal. Have you ever heard of mediation? Mm-hmm. You've heard of it, right? Yeah. What's involved in a mediation? Pain, suffering, mental anguish, you're right. So basically what a mediation does is, is involved, anyway, is the two parties get separated out into two separate rooms. They can't hear each other, supposedly, if you're at a good mediation. You can't hear each other talking. I'll tell you about that sometime. Um, you, 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 you talk with the mediator on your side. These are the problems I have with the case. This is what I want. This is what I would be willing to settle for, but don't tell them, but go down to here, but this is really what I... So the mediator takes your words and goes to the other side and says, okay, they're here at this amount. We could sell it right here today. It's like a used car sale. Right here today, we could, we could sell this amount. And then you go back and forth, and they were spo- the mediator is supposed to relay exactly what the other side wants. To the- and it goes sometimes half a day, sometimes a whole day. Sometimes you continue even after the day. But that's what the mediator does. He's trying to get the parties to come to an agreement to resolve their um, animosity, their warring, their lack of peace between each other because of the event that has happened. Moses is mediating an agreement of peace between God and man. And he's going back and forth. Is there much negotiation here? Yes? No. People say, well, we like that no adultery thing, but we like killing people, so we want to, we want to keep the murder thing in. Does any, any mediation that is uh, a negotiating deal. How does God lay this out? What does he say? What does he start, what does he start out with? What we have here, I'll just tell you, is, is, the, is, the, is elements of a covenant. We're going to go through those real quick. But how does he, what is that? If you obey me fully, okay, we'll get to that. That's stipulations, we'll get to that. Just reminding them what he has already done, what they've already seen. Okay. And why would he do that? Well, first of all, what does he remind them of? What does he say? What I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. What is that, what is that a picture of, well, other than eagles' wings? What is that a picture of? What is he doing? Delivering. Delivering, Delivering them and... 
judging Egypt, right? You saw that. You were witnesses to that absolute destruction of the greatest superpower in the world that I did, that, that you had no part in. You didn't raise a sword. You didn't ride a horse. You had no part in. I did it, right? And I delivered you and bore with you like on eagle's wings, brought you through the desert, provided for you. Why would he bring this out? Well, that's a good reason. <laughs> but if you're doing a contract with somebody, a covenant, even more than a contract, a covenant with somebody, why would you bring that out? It gives you credibility. It gives you credibility. In what way? Okay, credibility, he can do it, he's done it. What else might be the purpose of a prologue like this? The covenant is based in God, and this is just setting the foundation of it. Remember if you're like Egypt. Egypt. It's not I mean, he had said before, if, you, if you're like Egypt, I'll do the same to you as I did to them. The blessing and cursing, reminder, right? There's mercy and there's judgment. I'm about to enter into a covenant with you. I have the ability to enforce it. Right? I also have the ability to massively bless you in it. Yeah? It's also kind of like he's, you know, with, with two parties, if one party feels like they're being wronged, mm -hmm. um, what if that's a false wronging? What if they have a false perception of what really happened? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like um, God's building credibility, building rapport by reminding them, hey, I've already done all this stuff, mm -hmm. and what I'm doing is actually for your benefit. Okay. So okay. what you think you're wronged about, you're actually not. So he's, he's kind of defeating them before these even begin by telling them that what they think is, is a false perception. Okay. First, first point here, who initiates the covenant? Does Israel seek God? God calls out to Moses and, and, and seeks them and gets them. He initiates it. Um, it it's, he's recounting that he has initiated this. He, he freely chose to redeem Israel and destroy Egypt. That's his action, freely doing that, right? Yes? Who's Israel? Who, why, why do they deserve it? they do anything? In fact, the evidence shows that there are a bunch of complainers that probably don't deserve God's mercy, don't deserve his grace. And yet he sets his affection, he sets his purposes on them to call them out. It recounts how he freely chose them and redeemed them Nothing coerced him to do it. It was at his call that Israel became his people, and he brought them 
to the foot of the mountain to enter into covenant with them. It's his initiation. The opening phrase here, it's, this, is a, this is a typical, I say typical, it's, it's suzerain, 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 suzerain treaty. Uh, I read these. I never hear them pronounced. So, suzerain treaty. Suzerain, it's a treaty. Just keep going. Done by. <laughs> just work with me. Um, that 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 an overlord identifies himself and what he's done for the people he's about to enter into covenant with as a protector of them, as someone to whom they are obedient, and they pay tribute to. Right. So he identifies himself. He initiates the covenant. He acts first and the people respond. And that's the typical thing, the prologue. I have done this for you. I rescued you from these horrible people that were going to slaughter you. Now you serve me. They were in service to Pharaoh. Now, there is, now they are in service to God. Um, all right, what's, what's the next thing he talks about in, in, verse, um, in verse 4? Or verse 5, I'm sorry. Well, hold on. Verse, verse 4. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. There's also historical prologue. Again, recounting. Oops, there's an O there. Um, so this prologue is his identifying him. Who he is. And this is what he's done. Right? Who he is, what he's done, and then the, and then the last thing in verse five. What is he doing? There's a clause. A clause. And what do we call that clause, O oh, computer man? Uh, conditional. Conditional. And how is it set up? What's the what's the code that you would use? If then. If then clause. There is an if then clause. I see what you did there. <laughs> Uh, if then, we call this, this, it's called the stipulation in the treaty. God requires Israel to keep the covenant by obeying his commandments. And it says in, in verse 5, indeed obey. The ESV translates it, indeed obey. Uh, other translations would say, truly obey. Well, obey what? Jesus. Okay, always a good answer in Sunday school, but... A little more specific. My voice and keep my covenant. What does he have in mind here? He's about to give the law. We've already talked about being in two sections. The Ten Commandments. Ten mild suggestions. The Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant that we see later on in Exodus. And then how does he? How does this end? What is the last thing of this? Covenant? What is the reward of the blessing? Right, the reward, blessing. And what is that? What is that blessing? Okay, if he's going to be a treasured possession, Israel, we'll just say he or they, will be a treasured possession, who do they belong to? Who are they possessed by? 
Anybody else have anybody else have that distinction at this point? There's a distinctive oops, distinct. There's an M there. I'm gonna put this period. Distinct uh, possession. I'm going to define this as distinct. The variable is distinct. Distinctly belongs to Yahweh. A special treasure, the ESV uh, um, will translate it, my treasured possession, combining the ideas in that Hebrew term of possession and a special treasure. Um, the term that's used there refers to something that com <coughs> commonly belongs to a king and has been put aside for a particular use. Hand me my treasured battle axe. The one that I only use against my greatest enemies. You know, whatever. Wow. Okay. I guess. Uh, I guess that that could be a a, a, a relevant um, analogy. Mew mew, whatever that is. Um, I did say battle axe. I didn't say battle hammer. <laughs> uh, yes, sort of like Mew Mew. Um, all right, so so you have a, a a indication here that Israel is God's uh, treasured possession, set aside for a particular use. What what else is the blessing involved? What what does He call them? Before that. Kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests, or or priestly kings. Some some translations have priestly. What does that mean? Well, it's. I mean, before that, it says uh, he reminds them again that the, all earth is his, mm -hmm. um, and that they will be to him a kingdom of priests. So this is going to be like their use to him. This okay. In relation to all of the world, they will be set apart as his special possession as a kingdom of priests. For what purpose? Interesting. Mediating. Mediating what? For other people, okay. Sure. So they stand between you and God, mediating. mediating. God. Because what are they doing? What is the condition for them in this covenant? To obey God. So if you're if you're mediating, if you're standing as God's representative on earth, how are they doing that? Okay. High priest, right? And so, in Christ, we have uh, the priesthood of all believers. Sure. Now, all of us are able to do what only the high priest could do and enter into the presence of God. Okay. And so, um, uh, in Revelation one, it says that through Christ, now uh, He is allowed for all of us to enter into the same position that the priests only could enter into. Okay. 
because the veil is torn and, and all of his <coughs> other to raid as kings and, and queens. That's different. Okay. Um, so we have priestly kings at this time, though, and that's an, you're anticipating where we're going. That's very good. But at this time, what does it, what does he have in mind here? Because they're supposed to they're supposed to evangelize their world. Okay. Even though they are set apart as his people, he intends for them to 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 live in a way where they're obedient to him and to be a blessing and a mediator to the other peoples around them. This is part of the Abrahamic promise, isn't it? You'll be blessing to all peoples, to all nations. And God has in view here, as he's, as he's pointing them to this blessing of the covenant, what he's going to do through their obedience, is that they will be a light to the nations for what is good, right, and true. What is good, right, and true? They're to do that through their obedience to the law, to their proclaiming the goodness, mercy, and righteousness and holiness of Yahweh. They're to be that um, point of mediating the goodness of God, the truth of God, the rightness of God to the rest of the world. So that's, isn't it interesting? We're talking about Moses being the mediator. But God, through this covenant, is making an entire nation his mediator on some level through the law, through the law that he's given them. And then you have this third thing. What, what's the third thing? Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's holy mean? Set apart. Distinct. Unique. Okay, we're going to use a word. You ready? This is a word that indicates the election of Israel. They're set apart. They're distinct. They're carved out of humanity and made his own. It's an elective term. Not that he can choose to use it or not choose it. He means election when he uses it. Israel has been chosen and set apart by Yahweh into covenant. How about the Babylonians? Are they part of this? The Amalekites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Edomites, the Americanites. No, no, no other ite is part of this. Or Onians. The Onians aren't either. But it's still based on, on uh, faith in God. And, I, I mean, it's not just like you're born as an Israelite. Yeah, it's based on a thing. It's based on the condition. She's an eye that gets to sneak in somehow. Um, it's based on this. This is the condition for them. God initiates. He shows grace to them, reveals himself, acts as their deliverer, redeems them. We could use that term. And they, in response, obey. And the benefits, the blessings of obedience are they get to be mediators to the world. And they're called out and set apart for that purpose. What all are they? Let's just think through. What all would they be mediating? Um, what was the big deal in the garden? 
What, what was the relationship like between God and man in the Garden of Eden? Close, would you say? Um, that, that there was some, uh, there was covenant there, but there was still some, some intimacy there. I mean, he walked with them in the cool of the day, it says. After Genesis 3, how, how, how'd that go? Not so much? Not well. There was a removal of God's presence, of his, um, of his presence from man uh, in, in that way especially. So here we have Israel in a situation showing a semi-restoration of that relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people. I mean, ultimately the law is going to show that he's going to dwell among them in a tent. Still not walking with them in the cool of the day. Moses can only see the back of God. He can't see his face. But there's some sort of restoration of that idea through the covenant, through this mediation of the people of Israel. Um, there, there's a, there's a, a, a picture of how to be in communion with God through this covenant, right? We obey him. He, he sets his affection on us. Um, and there's also a, an example of the kind of righteousness that God requires. I mean, we talked about the, the, the grace that's in the law itself. Before then, you had all these people wondering how the God who I know or do not know forgive my sin. I don't even know what my sin is. Um, and if we have with God here a, a, an example of the kind of righteousness he requires and how to atone for unrighteousness in this covenant, a picture of it. So this is their mediation. How they do on that, fulfilling that mediation. Yeah, it, says, it says keep my covenant, not keep most of my covenant, or keep what you can. That's all right. I've got the long beard. It's my job to forgive you. They don't do it too, too well on this, do they? Uh, they fail. Um, but Christ fulfills his covenant. Uh, he distinctly belongs to Yahweh. Um, I think of the proclamation at his baptism, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is a priestly king. Hebrews calls him after the order of Melchizedek, quoting Psalm 110. He is the elect of God, Luke 9.35. Um, in him we have communion with God, truly. In him we have returned and will more fully return to a divine human relationship that was enjoyed in Eden, and, and even better. In him, we have exemplified the kind of righteousness required by God. Great. So what do we do with that? First uh, Peter 2.9. Christ comes down, he fulfills what Israel failed to fulfill, what David will fail to fulfill. Um, Christ fulfills the if-then clause. And in him, God sees us as also having fulfilled the if-then clause, even though we haven't at all close come to that. 
It's a foreign alien righteousness that God puts on us because of Christ. So what does 1 Peter 2.9 say? Somebody read it for me. Who is he talking to there? The church, how do you know that? Not some guy in Galatia. Because it's written to those who have the dispersion. <laughs> okay. And look. Yeah, they talk about Jesus being the stumbling block. Okay. Look at 1 Peter 1 3. Just, just flip your eyes back over one chapter. It says, Blessed be. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, first of all, who is he? God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who he is, what he's done. And he initiated it in the most massively huge way. One, he sends Christ, raises him from the dead, and then causes us to be born again. Um, God's initiation is a big, big deal in Scripture in these covenants. What are the ways that we see born again here as an example of, of that change that happens when God calls us and redeems us? What are some other analogies that are used to describe what goes on there? Just born again. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. So a resurrection idea. So resurrection, born again. What's another one? New creation. New creation. Okay, so we have... Everybody got this? You good? Test on Friday? Okay. You have... New birth, new life, new oops, creation. We have a lot of pregnant women in our church, a lot of them. Yes. It's a wonderful thing. It's like babies are popping up everywhere. It's crazy. <laughs> Did any one of those children, already born or going to be born, sit there out in the cosmos somewhere going, I want to be born, I want to be born, I want to be born? Did they do that? Did Something had to be done to them to make them alive to be born, right? Lazarus in the tomb. Okay? was dead for a while, four days, and we know he was dead because it was described, he stinketh. He was, he was mostly dead. He was <laughs> mostly dead. Who was the guy that, that was that uh, Wesley and uh, Princess Bride? Okay. More than mostly dead, he was stinking. That indicates to me that there was some death there. Why people don't, well, <laughs> not that kind of stink. Okay, 
So Lazarus is in the tomb. He's on the slab. He's sitting there, wrapped up. I want to be alive. I want to be alive. I want to be alive. No? Yes? No. He was dead. New creation. Spirit comes, hovers over the face of the deep. And it, the, the, the cosmos is saying, not having been created yet, out of nothing, says, I want to be created. I want to be created. I want to be. Do we have that? Something has to happen to birth, something has to happen to raise someone from the dead, and something has to happen to a creation not yet created in Jesus. Always a good answer, and yes, that's the right answer, but the point is, they don't do this to themselves. And so Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God initiates the covenant. He causes, he brings what once was not there, there. Um, another place, Paul says, um, He who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's that comparison again. This is God's initiation. Okay. Right. If you love him, you keep my commandments. Right. But it's not a for us getting salvation or keeping our salvation. It's it's a it's a reflection of our new heart. When when a baby is born, except for Emma, what is the first thing a baby normally does? Cries. She didn't cry. <laughs> another story, another time. Um, the the baby cries. Gas for air. It breathes in air. It's created to breathe. And in response, cries. Right? Wah, wah. It doesn't stop for 23 years. Wah, wah. <laughs> That's what a baby does with a new heart. It cries. That's what it's created to do, is to breathe and to let you know, this is colder than where I was. That's, that's the deal. When a Christian is born again, the response of the heart is, uh, what would you have me to do? I trust you. you. You've shown yourself to me. You've identified yourself to me. You've shown me what you've done for me in Christ. What is there for me to do? Right? That's the heart. If you love me, you obey my commands. That's the heart. And that's the difference between the Old and the New Covenant right there. They're, they're called upon in the Old Covenant to obey as a nation, but not all of them had that new heart. We talk about the regeneration of old saints sometime, but, but the, the basic character of the covenant is not one out of a new heart. It's one of, man, you need to do this. And then through the law, we see we can't do it, and we need Jesus. You were going to say something. Set these things on your mm -hmm. heart. Um, 
I would take Ezekiel, I'll take out your heart of stone, give you heart of flesh. All of those things pointing so forward. When God um, tells it that it's going to be based on our works, mm-hmm. it, it always fail. Mm-hmm. It's not that these things aren't still true, like this covenant that he gives them here in uh, Exodus is still very true. If you obey my law, this law, this full covenant that I'm about to give you, all the way through Leviticus, mm-hmm. we still have to keep that. Mm-hmm. But we can't. Christ did, and he's going to write it on our heart. Mm-hmm. And therefore, through him, we have kept the covenant. And the, cha- the desire is different. Because we know we can't keep it, but boy, we sure want to. And we keep fighting to grow in the, our ability through the Spirit. Back onto the in Christ sure. Sure, and it's through this, the work. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit, it's done. Reading His Word, studying His Word, praying, a dependence upon Him for it. But you still have to put to death the deeds of the body. If there's any synergism in the Scripture, it's there. It's a still a, a work of God, but we have to work because He's working. There, there's a, uh, maybe not synergism in the classic sense, but there is a, a dual working thing going on there. Um the church, now, you see Peter talking about, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Is that a kingdom of priests? Royal priesthood? A holy nation, a people of his own possession. That sound, the language is very similar, isn't it? To what we see in Exodus 19. So what is he saying? The church is a mediator between nations and God. Let me wrap up real quick. The church is a mediator between nations and God, and only through Jesus can we be in communion with God truly. Only through Jesus, this is what we're proclaiming, only through Jesus can we return to the divine human relationship enjoyed in Eden and better. Only in Jesus can we proclaim and demonstrate the kind of righteousness required by God as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, seeking to, um, to, to show the excellencies of God by by proclaiming it and by living um, uh, in, 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 uh, in concert with his, his word, his law. Um, any questions on that? This, is, this whole thing this, with Israel, it, it's, it's a foreshadowing of the church to come, of what God is doing in the world by calling out a people to himself to be this light, to be, and it's a community thing. It's not just one man. It's not just Moses he's doing this covenant with. It's the whole community, the whole nation that he's setting upon this uh, both duty and privilege to be his exhibit A for who he is and what he's done in the world. Anything else? Yes, sir. Um, In verse 5 of the first Peter reference, it said, "Who, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be with, uh, along with this new birth that he has given us, he's given, given us faith that the point of that faith is to guard our salvation. And I think there's a lot of people that say, oh, well, we have faith first, and then we are born again it's because of my faith. But first, you know, this First Peter reference seems to disagree with that. The point of our faith, which God has given to us, and it's by his power, verse 5, is to salvation, which is, is ready to be revealed to us. And now it's going to be. So then are we saved before <clears throat> we're saved before we call, the, call out to Christ? Absolutely. Okay. 
the lines that say, uh, "Who calls the name of the Lord?" You have to say it's not "Who calls the name of the Lord?" The name of the Lord is already saved. Can of worms. <laughs> I think I think it's the same thing as here. Is the salvation is ready to be revealed? Your full, complete salvation is is kept for you in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I think I think a, I think a more immediate. If you look at those examples, yeah. um, it doesn't say um, you were you were sick and you called out and uh, you know I gave you new life. It says you were dead in in your trespasses and then I gave you new life. So I think God gives us new life, and at that point that we're given new life, we see Jesus for who He really is. The ones who are saved are those who call out. I think He gives us the sight. And and the, and and the ability to call out only comes with him doing this first. Right. I guess it would just be whether or not you have the choice to not call out once you receive life. Why would you not? Why would a baby? Why would a baby not breathe when it's yeah. born by choice? Well, I, you know, I don't know if you're going to do this. Or else, so. <laughs> we can we can talk a little bit later. Obviously, I, I, just, I just disagree a little bit. But sure. That's, that's fine. Cool. That's fine. That's why we have these discussions. <laughs> I think that God definitely opens up. He pursues me first. I did not, I, I was dead and I did not seek God. Okay. God sought me. Sure. But then once God seeks me, as he does everybody, then um, he opens my eyes. And at that point, I can either respond or not. I think that's demonstrated in uh, Exodus 3 with um, when uh, God in the burning bush with Moses. Because mm-hmm. uh, you see, Moses is going about his business tending the sheep. He's not pursuing God. Mm-hmm. And then God appears to him in a burning bush. But then it says clearly that it wasn't until Moses turned aside to see what mm-hmm. God had shown him that God spoke to him. So um, I think it's... So you don't think Moses... You think Moses may have just ignored the burning bush that wasn't consuming the bush? I, no, I mean, in that situation, it's... You, think, you, you, don't, you don't think that maybe the burning bush is a irresistible? I don't really... Yeah, I don't believe in irresistible grace. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that... No matter what, I will choose that because uh, if I don't have a choice to, to choose God, then I can't truly love. I'm not truly loving God. Hmm. Um, um, 10-10. Okay, well, let's... Jacob will interject because he's a lot more concise than I am. Well, it's just not... It's kind of like a non-issue because the it's... the. The Westminster way of putting it is not that you don't have a choice, but that your choice will inevitably be when God grants his grace. It's, it's not invalidating choice at all by saying God's ultimate uh, agency works through my agency. So when God puts his grace on me, I have a choice. It's just that God's grace always does what it sets out to be. And I mean, we can kind of go back and forth, well, does that mean I don't have a choice or does have a choice and blah, 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 but, you know, the Westminster classic way of putting it is we have legitimate choice, um, but God's grace is a little bit better than that. It's not very good. Yeah, I just, that's why I just, uh, I guess, I just think if you take too far on one side or too far on the other side, you end in, in error.
All right, ditches aside, we're going to fall into the time ditch if we don't close down. So let me, let me do that. What? Okay. It's interesting because time is what confuses us. No, no, he's talking about when, when things happen. Because I think that both of those things happen instantaneously. There's not a delay. But if we're going to put in priority, it's God initiating, then we respond. We may disagree on that, but I, I, the, the, there's not like you're regenerated and you wait around for, I don't know, a year and a half. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's biblical. I think we all believe in a choice. It's just who gets the credit. I think it's the biggest. That's what it is my take. Okay. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for your grace, your wisdom, and your discernment, and that your word is true and profitable in all areas of life. And we thank you that... Um, you are drawing us to Christ and that you are um, revealing yourself to us, what you do and, how, and, and what you have, uh, who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray that you continue to grow us in unity and in faith and that you continue to um, conform us to the image of Jesus uh, day by day, moment by moment, as we live out and try to live out what you have set before us in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray and for his glory. Amen.